0: This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambroji, Two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from California and one from Massachusetts. Squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com. Right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambroji from Massachusetts.
2: And this is Craig Williams from Southern California. I li- write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And shortly, a new book uh, out in June called How to Get Sued. Congratulations on that, Craig. And uh, I
1: write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also Law.com's Legal Blog Watch. Uh, well, Craig, today we're going to talk about uh, efforts to bring a journalist shield law uh in congress um there's been uh a number of items in the news recently most most recently the uh case of former USA Today reporter Tony Losey, who is facing fines of $5,000 a day uh for failing uh, to identify her sources uh, in reporting on uh allegations that a former army scientist uh, had been a suspect in 2001 anthrax attacks and of course uh presidential Candidate uh, John McCain uh, made news this week for uh, endorsing the concept of a federal S.H.I.E.L.D. law. Uh, so we're going to uh, talk about that uh, with a couple of guests today.
2: Well, Bob, opponents have been arguing that the S.H.I.E.L.D. law gives extra privileges to journalists and that no citizen should be able to ignore a court-ordered subpoena.
1: Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk to a couple of different experts about the S.H.I.E.L.D. law uh, I just want to, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, say right up front that uh, in, in my own uh, legal work, I'm involved uh, as a lobbyist for the newspaper publishers in Massachusetts and have been involved here in Massachusetts on efforts to bring a, a shield law at the state level. But we're going to hear from a, a couple of specialists now who are, I mean, experts now who are uh, very much involved in the federal efforts. And uh, later in the program, we're going to hear from a lawyer who is involved in litigating some of these cases. So. Uh, to get started our first guest today is lucy doglish uh, who is executive director of the reporters committee for freedom of the press a voluntary unincorporated association of reporters and news editors dedicated to protecting the first amendment interests of the news media based in uh, arlington virginia the reporters committee has provided research guidance and representation in major press cases in state and federal courts for 36 years. Uh, Lucy Douglas, prior to assuming uh, her current position in 2000, was a media lawyer for five years in the trial department uh, of Dorsey & Whitney in Minneapolis. Uh, earlier in her career, she was a reporter and editor at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Uh, and uh, over during her last three years at the Pioneer Press, she served as a Night City editor, assistant news editor, and national foreign editor. Welcome to the show, Lucy Douglas.
3: Thank you very much.
2: And our next guest is Jeffrey Stone, the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago Law School. Jeff Stone has been a member of the law faculty since 1973, and from 1987 to 1993, he served as the dean of the law school and later, until 2002, served as the provost of the University of Chicago. Professor Stone served as a law clerk to Judge Skelly Wright of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and to Justice William J. Brennan Jr. of the Supreme Court of the United States. Professor Stone teaches primarily in the areas of constitutional law and evidence and writes principally in the field of constitutional law. Professor Stone is working on a new book, Sexing the Constitution, which will explore the historical evolution in Western culture of the intersection of sex, religion, and law. Welcome to the show, Professor Stone. Thanks
4: for having me. Delighted to be here.
1: Professor, let's start with you. I know that uh, last year you uh, had an op ed in the New York Times uh, on the uh, need for a federal shield law. Uh, why do you see this as important?
4: Well, 49 states in the District of Columbia have all recognized uh, that S.H.I.E.L.D. Law is important. Uh, the fact is that uh, the press serves an uh, indispensable function in our society of, of bringing information uh, to the public that is necessary for uh, public discourse and necessary for self-governance. And there are many circumstances when individuals have possession of information that is of uh, importance to public debate when they are reluctant uh, to reveal that information if it means that their identities will be known, and uh, a privilege in this context is necessary to give those individuals uh, reasonable assurance that if they do reveal the information to reporters and reporters then do make the information available to the public, um, that their anonymity will be uh, protected. In that sense, the logic of the of the reporter. Uh, source privileges really no different from the attorney-client privilege or the doctor-patient privilege. Um, in all these situations, uh, society has decided that it's valuable to encourage open and candid communication in some settings, and one of the ways of encouraging that communication is to assure people that if they wish to remain confidential, that unless there's a very compelling reason to uh, disclose their identities, that they're Uh, anonymity will be um, um, respected.
1: Lucy Douglas, why don't you tell us uh, what your agency, what your organization's involvement has been in this and why you see this as important?
3: Well, actually, our organization was founded in 1970 uh, right around this very uh, topic. Uh, Back in the late 60s, the Nixon administration in particular was very aggressive about trying to figure out who the sources were for reporters who were covering stories about the Vietnam War, the Black Panthers, drug trafficking, and whatnot. And um, they had some difficulty with a case called Brandsburg versus Hayes. Uh, and they argued that there should be a First Amendment privilege to protect uh sources and information. And the Supreme Court disagreed. Uh and it was a close vote. But um, since that time, the Reporters Committee has always worked very hard to get many of the state shield laws passed, and when the opportunity presented itself, to work with other media companies and organizations to impress upon the federal government the need to protect confidential sources in those rare occasions when they're necessary.
1: We uh, made some efforts to get somebody from the US Department of Justice to appear on the program today uh uh as uh, to express their positions uh in opposition to a federal shield law we were not successful in in doing that uh, uh but uh, in in the interest of, of fairness we are going to play a, a brief clip uh from talk of the nation on NPR that was recorded last week at the museum uh, in Washington DC uh, in which Kevin Driscoll, an uh, attorney at the Department of Justice, uh, in its criminal division, uh, briefly sets out uh, his uh, the DOJ's uh, reasons for opposing this bill. So let's play that clip. And why is the uh, department opposed to a federal shield law for reporters?
5: Well, the uh, department's opposition, I should note at the outset, it, we're not alone in opposing this bill. We've been uh, joined by the director of national intelligence, the entire intelligence community, Secretaries of Defense, Energy, and Homeland Security in in expressing opposition, but the Department's position is really a threefold objection. One, uh, there hasn't really been, in our view, a demonstration, an empirical demonstration, that uh, this bill is necessary. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled on this issue in the Brandsburg case, which um, I'm sure you've discussed, and uh, which decided that the First Amendment did not provide a privilege to to journalists to, to shield sources from a validly issued grand jury subpoena. In the 36 years since Brandsburg, we've seen a veritable explosion of information available to, on, on all topics uh, to the public. Uh, so we really don't think that there's been a, uh, a, a chilling effect in the absence of a federal shield law on sources. Um, second of all, uh, to the extent that protections are necessary, the Department uh, has voluntarily uh, imposed restrictions on its prosecutors and their ability to issue grand jury subpoenas to members of the news media. And as Mr. Fitzgerald in the clip you played earlier said, though that policy reflects a sentiment in the department that such subpoenas should be, and in fact are, exceedingly rare. Uh, and in fact, for the Uh, types of information that this legislation covers, which is, say, confidential source information, those subpoenas have been exceedingly rare. Uh, According to our own statistics here at the department, uh, we've authorized the issuance of subpoenas seeking confidential source information in fewer than two dozen cases since 1991. Uh, And the third reason is that this bill goes far beyond um, just grand jury subpoenas and uh, would pose serious uh, risks and obstacles to not just criminal investigations up to and including investigations of terrorism, but also intelligence investigations and and vital intelligence gathering tools that this bill, at least on its terms as currently written, would extend to and would would impede. So that's really the threefold nature of the department's uh, opposition to the bill.
2: Well, Lucy, what's the journalist's response to those three points?
3: Well, you know, this is extremely frustrating, uh, and obviously these are not new points to me. Um, You know, the uh the, the less than two dozen number that he keeps that the Justice Department keeps floating around. Um, what they are talking about there is subpoenas that have been issued by the Justice Department uh, by a US attorney or someone working under the authority of a US attorney uh that has gotten approval from the uh attorney general. It does not include any subpoena issued by a special prosecutor, and of course we had special prosecutor proceed, uh, subpoenas in the Tara Connie case up in Rhode Island a few years ago. We had the Judith Miller, Valerie Plame, Bob Novak case. Those were special. That was a special prosecutor. Those numbers are not included in the number he just quoted, and of course that number does not include any of the, oh, over the last five or six years, the 85 or so subpoenas issued by the Justice Department in uh, non-confidential source cases. So the point I would make is that newsrooms around the country are being faced with these subpoenas frequently. Now, not, is every part of the country being subjected to them? No, but there are certain parts of the country where this is a fairly common occurrence these days. Uh, I would disagree that there is not a chilling effect. I have talked to numerous editors out there, particularly from the nation's largest news organizations, and they have said that sources have come up to them and said, look, I'm not going to talk to your reporters anymore if they can't promise confidentiality. There is, uh, we have been working on a study with the University of Arizona Law School um, to demonstrate and come up with empirical evidence of that chilling effect, and I think the preliminary results are uh, pretty much verifying what I always thought to be the case. Now, as for this damage to the intelligence gathering capacity and damage to national security, I just don't buy it. You know, journalists, um, this is not a privilege for journalists. This is, in my mind, this is all about making sure that information continues to flow to the public. We have been working with Congress now for about four years on getting a federal shield law passed. Every single step of the way, we have been uh uh, working with them to come up with national security exceptions and believe me, the journalism community, the rank and file reporters out there who do national security reporting are not happy with this shield law as it sits in Congress right now because they realize it's not going to cover them, uh, in, in almost all of these situations. You're gonna have a bite at the apple, you're gonna have an opportunity under the way the bill is structured right now to make an argument to a judge that the public's need to know the information is greater than the potential damage to national security. But the way federal judges in this country seem to me to lean, I think a prosecutor in almost all instances is going to have the upper hand here. It's not going to take much for them to convince a judge that national security is at stake. Uh, I uh, have spent so much time up dealing with members of Congress on this whole national security and intelligence gathering uh prong of this bill, There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the journalists that are going to be left out of this whole situation, they're going to be left out of the protections of the S.H.I.E.L.D. law, are going to be those who cover national security, and I think that's that's really a shame in many instances.
1: There seems to be a sentiment that even a, a half a shield law is better than no shield law, or at least some protection is better than no protection. It, whatever happened to the idea that the First Amendment protected reporters, and is that is that notion gone?
4: Well, as, as Lucy said earlier, the Supreme Court in the Brandeis case Um, in a very close decision, rejected the idea that reporters were entitled to a uh, privilege under the First Amendment itself. Um, And the reasoning of that conclusion is fairly complicated, too complicated, I think, to probably go into here, but it was essentially based on two principles. And one is that uh, as a matter of First Amendment doctrine, uh, the court is very reluctant to create – Uh, constitutionally uh, carved out exemptions from laws of general applications that aren't directed themselves specifically at speech. And that would be the the nature of a constitutionally-based privilege that gives journalists a privilege that others wouldn't have. And the second is that the court was very reluctant as a First Amendment matter to have to define uh, who is a journalist, who is a reporter for purposes of the First Amendment, and therefore has the, the constitutional right to assert um, the privilege when others would not. Those were both, I think, quite reasonable grounds for the court to be uh, reluctant to recognize such a privilege. I want to add a couple of points, though, in response to the Department of Justice position, which I think is, uh, is really quite weak. Um, first, there's the claim that, well, we don't there's no evidence of a, of a chilling effect. The absence of a privilege hasn't uh, created a demonstrable situation in which people haven't revealed information to reporters. Well, of course, the old cliché is you can't prove a negative, and there's no way to know who hasn't told reporters what they might otherwise have told them because they haven't told reporters what they what they otherwise wouldn't have told them. So, there's no way to know other than by common sense. And by looking at the fact that 49 states and the District of Columbia have all enacted privileges, uh then in fact there's a very sensible belief, human nature being what it is, that people will behave in exactly the way Uh, that those who support the privilege believe, which is that at the margins uh, they will choose not to disclose information if they think it's going to get them in trouble um, unless they feel very, very strongly about the matter. The second point that I think is important to note is that uh, even if one concedes, which Lucy has already refuted, but even if you concede that the number of subpoenas is relatively small, um, that misunderstands the whole concept of chilling effect. The truth is that the source in, in almost all of these situations is doing a public service. The source believes they're doing a public service. The source is not doing something self-interested. Because they want to remain anonymous, they're not going to have very much to gain in almost all situations by revealing the information. And if they believe that there's even a small probability that they're going to wind up being fired or ostracized or, or prosecuted or 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 otherwise disadvantaged because of their actions, they're going to be deterred from doing so. So the fact is it doesn't take an awful lot of subpoenas to chill an awful lot of people from acting in a way that really would serve the public interest. So, so on that score, I think the Department of Justice really fundamentally misunderstands the First Amendment and the whole notion of chilling effect, which is that individuals are often very chilled in their exercise of what otherwise would be uh, publicly serving conduct, uh, if they are going to be running a risk of being punished or disadvantaged for doing so. Uh, and the third point I, I want to make about what they had to say about the national security issue is, is there is a real concern about national security that the Senate and the House have taken very seriously. As Lucy said, said, uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. statute is very much a compromise already. Um, it provides limitations on the privilege that are much greater than the limitations that exist in, in most states uh, in the United States. And uh, the idea that, that th- th- this privilege will seriously jeopardize the national security is really quite sensible. I mean, the statute already takes that into account in very dramatic ways and in ways that, as Lucy said, water down the privilege uh, to the extent where many journalists don't believe it's a good idea. I happen to support it. I think half a loaf is better than none here. Um, but the idea that this, this law is not fully respectful of, of the concerns about national security uh, is simply not credible.
2: Lucy, what's the response to Kevin Driscoll's argument that because of the explosion of information available on the Internet, bloggers and pamphleteers and just the the amount of information that's out there, that there's no real need for a, a shield law
3: <laughs> Well, and the
2: ability of people to be able to put their information out on the Internet?
3: Well, you know, uh, that's kind of a mind-blowing statement. Um because there is still a need for top quality journalism. Just because someone, you know, someone on the street can spout off on the internet and get information out there, you know, journalists. Being a journalist requires a certain amount of skill, or at least to be taken seriously as a journalist, requires a certain amount of skill, practice, training, and whatnot. And sources tend to not just spout things off. The stories that I am most concerned about losing. Uh, if we do not ha- have a privilege, given the current uh, environment, uh, are the stories that really require some digging, some uh, cross-checking between uh, various sources, uh, some interpreting, some digesting, and some careful presentation, analysis, and conclusions being drawn by uh, very talented, hard-working journalists. Um you know the notion that just anybody in the world can just you know spout off and post something on the web i mean that's that's uh for one thing disrespectful to journalists but um and it also i think uh doesn't recognize the role that journalists play in a society uh you know just the fact that information is out there doesn't mean that it's useful information.
1: We're getting near the end of this uh, segment of the program. We want to give each of you uh, a a quick opportunity to wrap up with any final thoughts you want to give us on this and also uh, to tell our listeners uh, uh, where they can reach you or find out more about you uh, before we break. So, Lucy, uh, Douglas, wrap up uh, any any final thoughts you have and and where can our listeners find out more
3: about your organization? Well, you can find out about the Reporters Committee at RCF p.org. That's reporterscommitteefreedompress.org. We are sort of a one-stop legal defense and advocacy shop for journalists working in the United States. I just want to point out that uh, right now, it's been a big week. John McCain came out at the Newspaper Association of America, and American Society of Newspaper Editors conference on Monday, and said even though he had reservations, he would vote in favor of the Shield Law. Barack Obama, I uh, signed on as a sponsor. Hillary Clinton has said that she will also vote for the bill. Um, so we're in a situation where the House of Representatives passed by a, ston- a stunning majority, by more, a bigger majority than in any vote so far in this Congress, a shield law. We're waiting for the Senate to take up the version of the shield law that was passed by the Senate Judiciary Committee. I think we're building up some momentum. Uh, and I believe that we're going to get something passed, hopefully before Memorial Day, and we'll get to um, massage the differences between the House and the Senate bills. And hopefully by the end of the year, uh, we will have a federal shield law.
1: And Professor Stone, your final thoughts uh, and uh, where can our listeners find out more about you or reach You
4: can find out more about me going to uh, the University of Chicago um, Law School uh, website and just look me up. It's easy enough to do. Uh, in terms of a final thought, I think I'd say this is a, a sound, much-needed piece of legislation. It's received broad bipartisan support. Uh, the only real argument made against it by people in the administration is trust us. Um, and the truth is when it comes to dealing with freedom of the press and freedom of discussion uh we the american people should never trust the executive branch uh it's important that congress have a say and the courts have a say and decisions about uh the preservation of the confidentiality of sources and and the Um, respect for the role of journalists in the society is a matter that's appropriately resolved not by a a bunch of lawyers and the Justice Department on their own uh, but by the deliberation of the Congress and the courts and that's what this legislation does
2: Great, well thank you very much Lucy Daglish and Jeffrey Stone for participating in our show, we need to take a short break when we return we'll be joined by Attorney Joel Kurtzberg partner at the law firm of Hill Gordon, Rendell and LLP to discuss more on the Shield Law, we'll be right back
0: Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayofpleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit.
3: If you have a
4: comment or question we want to hear from you, leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
0: A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the
2: Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi And this is Craig Williams. We're now joined by Attorney Joel Kurtzberg, partner at the law firm of Cahill, Gordon & Rindell. Joel's practice focuses on general commercial litigation with extensive experience in First Amendment media law, insurance, reinsurance, securities law, and antitrust. He's currently an adjunct professor at Fordham University School of Law, where he co-teaches a class about internet law, focusing on the First Amendment, intellectual property, and privacy issues in cyberspace. He was involved in the representation of newspaper and magazine reporters in responding to third-party subpoenas seeking confidential source information in a criminal investigation directed at the disclosure of Valerie Plain's identity as a CIA operative, welcome to the show, Joel Kurtzberg.
6: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, let's get uh, start off with a hot topic. You were right before we got you on in the show. You were giving us a little bit of background on the uh, Ryzen matter.
6: Uh, Yes, I I am representing Jim Risen, who is the reporter for the New York Times, uh, who recently won the Pulitzer Prize for his story about disclosing the NSA uh, wiretapping that was taking place domestically without warrants, And I represented Jim in the past in the Wen Ho Lee matter, which was another reporter's privilege case. Uh, I'm not going to comment about the ongoing grand jury investigation, other than to say what's already been publicly said, which is that uh, Jim has been served with a subpoena by a grand jury that uh, seeks the identity of his confidential sources uh, in connection with uh, a story that he wrote in... uh, One of the chapters of his recent book, not for reporting that he did uh, as a a journalist for the Times, and um, we are fighting the subpoena.
1: Joel, I'm interested in hearing. You know, you're. You're. I guess uh, we can. We can say you're out there in the trenches on this issue. Uh, if, from your perspective representing uh, reporters and, and media organizations, what do you see as the need for uh, a S.H.I.E.L.D. law?
6: I think that the need is uh, tremendous. For, for one thing, uh, I think that it's important to point out that uh, the kinds of stories where the need is greatest – are the kinds of stories that are the most important stories. Um, you know, things that have recently been uh, very high profile, things, uh, stories that have been awarded the Pulitzer Prize, things like the disclosure of the, the CIA secret prisons by Dana Priest to the Washington Post, or Jim Risen's story about the NSA wiretapping, uh, are all incredibly newsworthy stories that could not have been written without the help of confidential sources. And uh, there is confidential source protection in almost every state, if you are in state court. But there is a lot of inconsistency right now in federal court, and uh, the different federal courts have interpreted the law, they're all over the map, really. And this is really an area of law where it's very important for there to be a clear rule report for For the sake of everyone, for both reporters and their sources it, it's very important uh for there to be a clear rule and I would argue that the rule here should be that there should be protection uh for reporters uh and their confidential sources and without that kind of protection uh a lot of very important stories would not get written
2: are there variances in the rules between Uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. laws for journalists and S.H.I.E.L.D. laws for book authors? Uh,
6: There are variances uh, among the state laws. Uh, There are some state laws that specifically list book publishers uh, as one of the people who are protected. It all depends on how they define what a journalist is, which is, of course, one of the issues that, that the Senate is currently struggling with on the current S.H.I.E.L.D. law that's pending. Um, and some sh- some of the S.H.I.E.L.D. laws of the states specify that book authors are covered. Some of them don't specify, but it's clear from the language that they're covered. Um, so there are some variances. I couldn't give you a, a count off the top of my head as to which one specifically mentioned book authors or not. That issue is not really... Um, you know an issue here because we're not we're not in state court. this is a federal grand jury investigation that I'm handling for for jim uh and and so state laws don't govern
1: what about the the question of uh Certainly in the federal shield law, as you say, it's been very much a question as what should be the scope of the coverage. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the, there's an effort here in Massachusetts where I am to enact a, a state shield law, and, and the debate there uh, is very much focused on the question of whether bloggers should be covered. Uh, what, what is the appropriate scope of a law from your perspective?
6: I think that, uh, for one, it's a very important question as to how to define, um, you know, who's covered and who's not covered. But I think there's been a lot of emphasis on the the issue that, that sort of makes it a little more complicated than it even needs to be. I, I remember in the Wen Ho Lee case, when we were on appeal, uh, one of the judges on the panel, Judge Centel, got very upset and conjured up images of, you know, asked, are bloggers covered, which is, of course, a favorite question, and, and talked, about the, the proverbial person sitting at home in their pajamas and being worried that this would cover everyone if you covered bloggers. The reality of it is that the federal courts have, have, have struggled with this question and have done a, ver- a relatively good job of, of dealing with the question of who is a journalist for years, even without the text of a shield law in front of them. And I would say that most of them have done what I call a functional test is the person at the time that they are uh, gathering the information engaged in the practice of journalism, as, and me- that is measured by was their intent at the time to disseminate the information. Now, of course, there are tough cases where it's hard to tell. Uh, there was a, a case in the Second Circuit, Von Bulow versus Von Bulo, where um, you know, it was unclear if a book author, was covered uh, by the journalist privilege, and they ultimately held that the book author wasn't because they didn't have the intent at the time. The reason they were collecting information at the time was not to publish it, and uh, the federal courts have not had a difficult time resolving that issue, and the states, most of whom, you know, almost all of which have shield laws, have also done uh, a decent job resolving the difficult cases. I get concerned when I see people use that issue, namely the difficulty in defining who's a journalist, as an excuse or a reason not to pass a S.H.I.E.L.D. law in the first place. Yes, there'll be difficult cases, but applying a functional test has worked for some time, and I think that the uh, the draft of the S.H.I.E.L.D. law that's, uh, that's out there right now addresses the question in a reasonable fashion.
1: What about the... Is, there's been a lot of... Uh focus on the idea that uh, the opponents of the shield law focus heavily on the idea that uh, uh, shielding reporter sources would uh, would foster terrorism, would uh, foster uh, criminal activity. Uh, but it's something that doesn't get as much attention. There's been some opposition from the, the private sector saying that a, a shield law would Uh, would encourage the uh, revelation of trade secrets, uh, would would, uh, endanger uh, uh, confidential corporate uh, information, intellectual property information. Uh, Have you uh, seen any of that, and and what's your perspective on that?
6: I haven't really come across... Uh, cases uh, where that has been uh, a primary issue, uh, where, the, uh, and I'm not really sure I understand the, the their point that it will somehow actively encourage people to disclose corporate secrets. Uh, and I think that the Shield Law, as drafted, uh, has a balancing component uh, that that talks about measuring the balance of the, the benefit of the disclosure to the harm that might be caused by the disclosure. And so well, I would say that in, in, in those circumstances, the current law would address that in the balancing. So it's not a reason. It, the court can take it into account under the standard that has been proposed uh, in doing the balancing, um, but uh, it's not a reason not to perform the balancing in the first place.
2: How does this disclosure of Valerie Plain's identity as a CIA operative play into this argument? I
6: mean, again, I would, my, uh, the answer to that is, uh, I don't think you know, there's a lot of. As you know, I, I represented uh, uh, Judith Miller and Matt Cooper through uh, the, uh, at least Matt for a portion of that investigation and Judy throughout the entirety of the investigation. And, uh, you know, if people ask, it's not clear what the outcome would have been had there been a shield law in place because there would have had to have been. Uh, a balancing done, and I suppose that arguments could have been made that the harm caused by the leak there uh, outweighs the benefits of of uh, protecting the free flow of information. But what I would say is, again, that's not a reason not to perform the balancing at all, which is what uh... the court held uh... that it, it at least as to the first amendment it held that it was not going to perform the balancing because there's no privilege at all and as to the common law question they said well we're not going to even decide if there's a privilege it doesn't matter because we think it would It just clearly would have been outweighed here uh... I, again i think that uh... the relevant question is should there be a shield law that requires courts to do that kind of balancing If there are arguments that can be made on the other side, and and there are real issues on the other side of the equation uh, that that the harm outweighs the benefit, then that's fine. But the arguments should be made, and on a case-by-case basis, courts should make that decision after weighing all of the relevant factors. Without a shield law, there is no assurance that that balancing will be done. In every case, because some of the courts have held, you know, the courts have been all over the map. Some of the courts have held that they don't need to do that balancing. Uh, And we think uh, it's pretty clear that, that at the very least, we should all agree that the balancing should be performed.
2: Well, if the argument I guess is that if there were no shield law in place, the disclosure would have never occurred in the first instance, keeping valerie 's identity secret
6: i 'm not sure, and that 's always a difficult question to answer as to you know these these counterfactuals I, you know, what would happen if there if there were a shield law in place uh, the argument there is that the sources would never have disclosed it in the first place uh, It strikes me that that's that's not really true they did disclose it uh and uh, you know it's unclear what would happen if there were a shield law i mean i think the argument usually is that they would be more likely to make a disclosure cuz they would feel that they had protection and that we you know people at least argue on the other side that we we don't want them to we want to deter people from making these kinds of disclosures but uh You know, I think what's really also difficult to measure and what people frequently overlook is the costs of not doing the balancing. Uh, I mean, I sort of think back to, uh, you know, when I was back in law school and my torts professor would talk about the importance of tort law and, and, uh, you know, it's very easy because we see accidents happen all the time. And he'd say, but it's very hard to know if we weren't holding people liable for, say, shoveling their, their crosswalk, how many accidents get prevented by people who go out and shovel their crosswalk because they know that they'd be liable if someone fell and they hadn't done it and they were negligent. Well, it's the same thing here. Uh, you know, there are a lot of stories. Important stories, important stories like the disclosure of the, the secret prisons in the CIA, uh, stories like the NSA wiretapping, stories that, that actually can have such a significant impact uh, on, on our government that they can affect history, affect what happens. They, can, they, they give rise to new legislation. Those stories won't get written, uh, at least a certain number of them won't get written. Maybe some sources would come forward even without the protection of a shield law, but some won't. And it's, it's not something you can readily quantify, but I think that it's pretty clear that there are some sources, it's unclear how many, with important information that we all would agree is probably a good thing for it to be disclosed, who won't come forward if they feel like they know there is no protection.
2: Joel, we've reached the end of the program where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. So could you uh, give us your contact information and your final thoughts?
6: Sure. Uh, my contact information uh, can be found on my firm's website, uh, which is www.cahill.com, C-A-H-I-L-L. Uh, I can also be reached via uh, email at j.kurtzberg@cahill.com. at cahill.com and that's J-K-U-R-T-Z-B-E-R-G at Cahill.com. Uh My final thoughts really are, are this. Uh, for all those people who are concerned about uh, the interests that are on the other side of the equation, meaning those who are concerned about the interest in law enforcement or that civil litigants have to protect their privacy, uh, I would say that the need for the shield law here uh, is obvious and that uh, that really without a shield law, courts will not be able to balance the interests in a way that I think is the only way that's appropriate. I think we would all agree there are some leaks of information that people might think are not beneficial to society, and there are some leaks of information that people think are definitely beneficial to society uh and that without protection for confidential sources um, uh, there can be there won't be the necessary balancing of that those interests and and from a policy standpoint uh that's really the most uh the, the, the most desired result that, that you know, the shield law takes into account interests on both sides of the equation. And uh, without a shield law, uh, there isn't any uh, mechanism in place that takes into account interests on both sides.
1: Well, Joel Kurtzberg, thank you very much for uh, your time and for, for joining us today. And thanks again to uh, Lucy Douglas of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and Jeffrey Stone of the University of Chicago Law School. And uh, I think that about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week.
2: That's right, Bob, and you can check out all of our lawyer-to-lawyer shows at Legaltalknetwork.com.
1: And of course, you can also find us on the iTunes, on iTunes, in the iPod, in the podcast library there today. I'm tongue-tied today. Well, we'll be
2: over it by next week, I'm sure. I'm sure. We'll see you then.
1: Good to talk to you, and I'll see you then.
0: Thanks for listening to Lawyer-to-Lawyer to Lawyer with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi.